Welcome to this episode of the Fertility Podcast. If you're a new listener, hello and welcome. This podcast is for you. If you found that starting a family hasn't gone to plan, you're feeling a bit shit and you're fed up of reading stuff and maybe you just feel like listening to something, hello. It's the beauty of a podcast. If you've not listened to any other episodes, I speak to all sorts of fertility experts, coaches, people that are willing to share their story, whether they've gone through unexplained infertility and haven't managed to start a family, whether they've had secondary infertility issues, whether they've had to go abroad for fertility treatment, had a donor, all sorts of different stories. So do have a look around either at thefertilitypodcast.com or if you're in iTunes, then you can just look in the podcasts for the Fertility Podcast where you can subscribe. Anyway, we're about to hear from Emily Hodge, who's a lovely lady that I met on Twitter, which is where I meet a lot of my subjects, as we'll call them. And Emily talks about dealing with cancer and also fertility preservation, which is something that I just started to learn about in the clinic visits that I did in a previous season, uh, season four and five on this podcast. If you haven't listened to any of them and you are looking for a clinic in the UK, do have a listen back because I visit lots of places to give you an insight into what the staff there are like and um, the different treatments that they offer. And there are a couple that do specialise in fertility preservation, which I was really fascinated to understand more about. So if you're on the train or you're at home, sit back, relax. If you're out walking your dog, then I do hope that um, you find Emily's story as fascinating as I did. Emily, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, Natalie. How are you? Very good. I'm delighted that you left your message. Thank you. What prompted you to leave me a message? I had been listening even, the third, the third sense, for a little while. And I and I had gone onto the site and seen that you were doing some interesting things about visiting different clinics. And then there was the message. And I just thought, actually, this is quite interesting because the work that I do isn't all that much talked about in the public arena I guess and it's quite a difficult one to articulate so I just thought well why not get in touch and see if we can have a chat and see if it can be articulated in any way um, through the podcast. Well here we are now your story I talked to so many people on this podcast who are willing to share their remarkable stories and for that I feel very privileged and, and I thank you in advance because you were diagnosed at a pretty young age with bowel cancer tell me at that point what was going on because I'm assuming you've already got all these coping mechanisms in your in your being from your professional work and then bam you're hit with that Uh, that's a great way to put it yeah I mean it's a shock I was 30 when I was diagnosed I think also just outside of all of the psychology of it the life stage that we were at I just got married you know we really wanted to start a family and um, had just had three months of a honeymoon and kind of hanging out with my husband and then suddenly had this diagnosis so it's it's a very strange one when you're flung into a path that you don't expect and I know that those words could resonate with many people even outside of the cancer world it's just that it's such a shocking one and so sort of medically heavy that it, it, it becomes something that you have to manage in a very different way. So, yeah, I mean, I was 30. I know that there are younger people with cancer. There doesn't tend to be that many of us. There, there are thousands and thousands, unfortunately. But obviously, at this life stage, you go through a lot. Most 30-year-olds usually are, I don't know, getting their promotions at work, finding their partners, they're Tinder dating, they're getting married or having kids. You know, the exciting bits of your life where it's all fast-paced and to suddenly have cancer as part of it is definitely not your expected plan. 
the the slight curveball in all of that was that I was pregnant when I was diagnosed. So um, that added an element of complication, which certainly gave us a lot more to think about had we only had one of those things. As it turned out, the severity of where the cancer was, so it's bowel cancer, and obviously that's very near your pelvis region and all the surgeries and tests that I had to have, we actually lost the pregnancy. So yeah, it's it's what happened. It's part of life, isn't it? And so when we were when I was diagnosed, we were talking about it in the context of the pregnancy and what what might happen. As it turned out, I then wasn't pregnant, but we then went on to a conversation about fertility preservation. And I've since, obviously, in the work that I do, but also speaking to many people, I know that that's not a common thing. A lot of the time, when cancer rears its head. There may not be enough time to even think about fertility preservation. It may not be the appropriate moment. You know, somebody may not have a partner that they want to do it with, or it might be an added expense that you have to think about. Um, so, uh, you know, fertility preservation was a part of what we were offered. And I had all of three weeks um, from the moment that we lost the pregnancy until I had surgery. And that was enough time for them to say, okay, so this situation has changed. You have enough time to have fertility preservation to have a round of IVF. So we had a very quick round of IVF and um, I had embryos stored and they were put away for a time in the future when it would be more appropriate for me to hopefully be pregnant. Um, wow. But yeah, so, so it was assuming a, it was the right time in your cycle amongst everything that was going on, which is why they could do that so quickly. It wasn't exactly a good point. It was not. And um, they just have to take the chance because if you have enough a time, so three weeks was enough time to chance it. But they just um, they give you the stimulation drugs and they just wing it a bit and say, we hope that we get enough. So we didn't have any down regulation. I just had stimulation. Um, and in the end, we got four embryos to store that we you know put away and and really didn't think about again for a very long time so then the cancer world took me over and really for a year I was in that in surgeries in chemotherapy more surgeries things going wrong um yeah when when fertility really isn't part of your you know vocabulary for that for that time you I'm assuming now have had the all clear as much as you you still have to go back for regular checks is that right yeah, so I'm five, nearly six years out of the actual cancer experience. I call it experience. A lot of people might say journey, but we, um, you can say whichever word you like, really. Uh, it, you know, the actual experience was about a year long. And then, and then obviously the recovery is all of that time afterwards when you're trying to come to terms with what's happened. Your body is trying to settle down. Your mind is trying very much so to settle down. I was given the all clear pretty much after my chemotherapy. That's not the same for everybody. Bowel cancer is one of those cancers that if you, if it's a clear form of it and they can remove it through surgery, they tend to say that's you clear. But um, each cancer is so very different. You know, I know people living with chronic um, lymphoma who, you know, it will go on forever. It's not really a case of saying it's clear for them. But for mine, we, we had that chance that moment I guess to say it's not no longer in your body and that continues to be the day um and yeah I do go for checks I have now yearly checks they were every three months and then every six months and now it's every year and that includes a scan and a colonoscopy as well. Going back to your fertility experience you went through the fertility treatment and you've got some some frozen embryos with regards to starting a family now is that a just in case it doesn't happen naturally or have you been advised that you would need fertility treatment in order to get pregnant now? 
Well, I suppose um, <laughs> we are in five years, in five years time where we are now, it looks very different to say two years ago, three years ago. So we actually waited for quite a while. We tried for a pregnancy and it didn't work. We then um, were advised, obviously, we'd need to go for IVF. And they pretty much said, you know, it's likely that the effects of the cancer have changed your physiology. Obviously, I had a lot of pelvic surgery. So you can imagine the scarring that must be there. Yeah. I suppose the hard thing was, and, and it's debatable whether this is hard, I was never told I couldn't have children. So it was always left open. It was always a hope. It was always a um, a thing that was, you know, a big part of the recovery. If we can just move on and have a family, it will help us, you know, move forward. I know that there are also people who don't get told that. They get told very, very quickly, you will not be able to ever have children naturally. And that's that door closed. Now, that's a shock and that's very sudden. I'd argue that it's also quite hard to kind of keep hoping and keep hoping that it might happen. So, there's just very complicated emotions that happen with the process. But with regards to my situation, we um, we tried. We went for IVF. We um, had three rounds of IVF, actually, in the last two, three years. Um, we had one pregnancy, but we lost that pregnancy. And then we used the embryos that I had stored away for that rainy day, and they didn't work. So this was a year and a half ago. And... We turned around to each other, my husband and I, and said, enough is enough. We cannot and don't want to go through kind of this situation, this pain, this this hurt all the time. And we stepped away from it very, very um, quite succinctly, actually. I'm wondering whether your professional background has enabled you to, to cope in some ways more speedily than somebody who hasn't got the kind of toolkit that you've got as a psychologist and as a coach and I know that you talk with lots of people about this it, it seems that you're you're very content in your decision just from that brave chat of you explaining it to me is that fair to say or am I being hugely presumptuous no no I mean I suppose I should clarify stepping away um what does that mean so stepping away for us was taking a break resting stopping this this ongoing medical clinical situation um so stepping away for us was you know uh, I was on lots of forums and I was uh you know in those conversations I stepped away from them I stopped being mildly obsessed with this this idea that it had to happen right now and as a result my husband also rested and and felt you know more free and we became I guess, really, we felt we started to do what we should have done that first year we got married. We started to kind of, you know, have a bit of fun again. And at the same time, my business was starting. So it's sort of the timing of that, which was maybe I was going through a process. I was ready to be able to do the business that I do, run run the work that I, that I run. But stepping away, I definitely don't feel that it means we're never going to have a family, I hope. I want us to have a family. My desire for it is is still very much there. It just feels that we stepped away from the grief, and and that sounds like a very active process. I'm I'm aware that it may sound very um that was that was easy then, but you know it, it's been such um, I guess it was very intense. And when I look at all of the mini traumas within it, I suppose what I wasn't able to do was deal with each trauma as it came up. So stepping away enabled me particularly to go, this is a lot of trauma. Uh, I have to be able to come to terms with this in some way. 
And some of that, completely outside of any training I have, was just human. It was a where is joy in the world? I have to find joy because I couldn't go on and not finding or having or feeling joy. And I have to say, joy resonates a lot with everybody. It's quite a wonderful word. It's sometimes in our lives, we just don't have enough joyful stop, regardless of traumas and difficulties that go on. But I I very actively remember thinking, I'm going to find joy, not because I wanted to hide all of the stuff that had happened. And I was trying to bury it. Equally, the other side of it, I suppose I didn't, you know, go for massive amounts of psychoanalysis, I absolutely got support um, that I needed. But I just wanted to live life. And um, and I'm at the point now, I think, where maybe I'm more articulate because it feels a bit more distant. It's not exceptionally distant. Um, and I think also difficulty, difficult things that we go in our lives will always stay with us. So obviously part of your podcast is thinking about infertility. I don't know many people who've been through infertility who forget it. You know, it doesn't easily lose it doesn't lose you just because you might have a child or or want a bigger family it's sort of part of your world isn't it it's an experience that stays with you in some way and I think it redefines who you are in so many different ways when you've had uh, an unusual journey to parenthood whether it results in that family or not it, it definitely redefines your outlook which I think has come across in in a lot of the people that are, have, have been kind enough to speak on this podcast And I just want to focus a little bit on something that I saw on your blog where you describe about the work that you're doing now. You talked about the support that you offer through and after the challenges that people face. And I was interested to know, do you think enough people maintain that level of interaction once they've been through a a, a traumatic experience or they just think, I'm all right now, I'm fixed, I can manage on my own? If you look at something like cancer, that's a really good question. Obviously, cancer is sort of the primary thing that I, I think about with that. Really, when you're going through something really intense, so say when I was in hospital, when my clients are there in hospital and going through treatment, your brain is so full of all the medical and clinical side of it. You don't really have time to process. There are almost two parts to it. And you're obviously thinking about what this might be like in the future, what what's going on with my friends, you know, all those sorts of things. That's what part one almost. And there's without a doubt part two as well. And often what happens is that you don't really get explained there might be a part two and what that part two might look and feel and be like and that's the real really shocking thing about it we believe quite rightly that when that experience so cancer and all that goes with it is over that we are going to feel elated and oh my goodness I'm so relieved because I'm not having this horrible thing done to me and for the most part you know most cancer experiences are pretty difficult so so let's so use that as the example but you think I should be celebrating right now I'm going to go back to work I'm going to find my amazing job I'm finally going to date again or um I don't know I can have sex with my husband again or I can go out and have a drink with my friends and you can do all those things but what we tend to not really find is this idea that our minds are still processing all of this stuff we don't forget it easily and our bodies may be different too they may function differently we might have to eat differently sleep differently uh exercise differently or can't exercise at all and and when you're in hospital so part one you have a team around you have your clinical your specialist lots of your friends and family are very likely to be there either with you or very present for you and through nobody's fault it's just naturally what happens when you get to part two everyone thinks you're fine and everyone believes that you're okay and we may also believe that we're fine and not really recognize the signs of 
not feeling great. Um, and a lot of that might be about retreating into ourselves and having memories of, you know, some of the situations we went through or fears of reoccurrence, which are very common for most cancer um, patients. Equally, this idea that we haven't got the same energy, we don't think the same all the time. And this is very generic, obviously, but these things tend to come up. They're around the way we process um, our, our thoughts and our feelings can be very much adjusted. And like you said, if, if you've had a big um, situation happen to you in your life, it does redefine you. It changes your perspective and where you focus your energy. A lot of us tend to try to go back to what our old normal was, but we quite quickly realise that that's a little bit harder not for any one reason but for many reasons and they're hard to identify individually if people are listening to you thinking wow i need to speak to emily because i know that there's some online work that you're doing with Mirkaba. um i was just looking at one of their videos yeah is that how you're starting to work then in this kind of digital obviously it's a wonderful world that we now live in that you can have access to people like yourselves digitally is that where you're finding work now i mean obviously in person is is ideal but if you can't be in person with people yeah, it's a great question because I didn't think this would be where I'd go. It's happening quite sort of naturally. Um, I tend to do quite a lot of chats like Facebook live chats and um, interviews with people maybe over Skype or, um, you know, on my Facebook page and stuff. And that just seems to resonate in the sense of you can get to anyone. You can, you know, get to the north end of Scotland. You can get to America in that way. I tend to then see um, clients over Skype if they're physically near me and I'm not far from London. You know, we might be able to meet up, but more often than not, it's over Skype and that relationship is is I would say as good quality um, and it can have an advantage in the sense of it's not about rushing to find a parking space you know it oh, yeah. can stress traffic before a session or a therapy session isn't good and then you have to apologize for being so late and it's all a bit that th I love face-to-face -face. so you know and I go to face-to-face -to -face things myself but equally I think when when we want to find somebody to talk to or to speak to and process our stuff we tend to naturally go with the personal people that we have rapport with. And that for me is the biggest de definition about finding the right person that you want to speak to. Uh, hopefully that person will be qualified and, you know, will have the right qualifications to help you work through your stuff. But it's also about their rapport. If, um, if you've got a, I always say that if you have a clinician or somebody who's down the other end of your road, they're a reasonable price and you can get to them very easily but and you're there all right, but you don't really like them versus someone who might be quite far away, but speaks your language, um, understands the things, the elements, the traumas, the, you know, processing that you're going through. I would always choose the latter. Now, whether that sounds like an advert for myself, I hope, I hope not. It's just more around uh -huh. how, it's how we work. <laughs> it's, you know, I've worked with coaches and things before, and I know that's a lot about how we process stuff is how we resonate with that person. So that's always a really good idea, but also, um, these topics aren't that easy, are they? They're they're difficult, they're tricky, they're a bit, um, I don't know, they can be icky sometimes, fertility stuff maybe can be, um, cancer stuff can be, you know, I talk about my bowels and <laughs> going to the toilet and things. All of those very personal elements can be a little bit easier to try and explain on email or on the phone or online to start with anyway. It's it's, it's horses for courses, but it's certainly a, a way of getting these tricky topics communicated about talked about out in the open humanized because we experience not always these things but we experience hard things and talking about them is what helps other people to see that you know they're experiencing something similar too 
Well, I'm going to put your details, as I always do, on the show notes uh, for this episode. And I'm, I'm just interested, finally, in any advice that you'd offer with regards to that point of if you've been diagnosed with cancer and then there's that conversation about fertility treatment because I've been talking to some clinics and there is that quite speedy communication between a, an oncology department and a fertility unit and I'm interested in once you'd kind of got past that first hurdle and revisited your fertility treatment whether you stuck to the same place or whether you did a little bit of research to see if it was a clinic specializing in cancer preservation how that journey panned out Good question. I probably would have stuck with the same place, but we had moved actually. We lived in London when I went through treatment and the IVF, uh, the preservation. We then moved down to Surrey and I wasn't in the catchment area. So by default, we went with the local clinic. But I did spend a little bit of time. So in the period of time when we were looking at IVF again, I, I was looking at all the, you, you know, the stats about success rates. And frankly, I don't know it's an interesting question about whether I would have done this if I hadn't have had cancer. I was so sort of tired. <laughs> I didn't really have the energy to think, well, 0.2 percentage point is going to make all the difference, but I have to drive two and a half hours to get there. And I don't know the consultant. And yeah. so I looked at the differences and the success rates. And then I just went, no, I'm going to go with the closest one. I like them. They have a comfortable chair. I can sit in. <laughs> And, and I love that, you know, and I'm still in contact with them today. I don't work with them anymore. I'm not part of their client group, but I, I like them. My experience with them was good. So um, if I can give you a takeaway, obviously stats make a huge difference. But if it's about your well-being and your comfortableness, then take that into account too. I don't think that's reported very much in the difference between clinics. Um, it's the nuances that make a difference. Do you get a cup of tea? Do you get some privacy? Do you get some time to go and walk in a little garden when you're waiting? Those make a huge difference in such a stressful process. Definitely. Well, that's one of the things I've been trying to convey with my clinic visits is the importance of you need it to feel right. Success rates can be through the roof, which is an ideal, but you need to feel comfortable where you go when you walk through those doors. Yeah, and, and the success rate is also based on so many other factors. You're an individual. I'm sure you've said this before. We're all individuals. We all have different elements of what those success rates mean. So, yeah, really important. Thank you. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you, Emily. And I will put her details on the show notes, which are going to be at fertilitypodcast.com forward slash Emily. Now, next week in the UK, starting from the 31st of October, it's National Fertility Awareness Week. So on Monday, I'm going to be sharing an episode with you from the HFEA, the Human Fertilisation Embryology Authority in the UK, whose 25th anniversary I got to go to. And really through the week, I'm going to be trying to just do as much as I can to raise awareness of what's going on with different people. At the end of the week is the fertility show, which I'm chuffed to be able to go to. If you haven't yet heard my episode that I just released, episode 57, then um, I'll put a link for that in these show notes just to keep you entertained. As always, it's brilliant to hear from you. I love getting your emails. I had an email after the last episode from a lady in Australia, hello Rachel, who I'm going to be speaking to about her story. And I just think it is amazing how far reaching a podcast can be. I know we live in an international world with the internet, but still, I find it flabbergasting. But I love it. And I love that you find this podcast helpful. And do keep emailing me, natalie at the fertilitypodcast.com. Until the next time, take care.